Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, billions of dollars on the table as the First Ministers come to Ottawa. We will be there putting more money on the table. But already the Prime Minister says it is unlikely a deal will be signed tomorrow. So what will come out of the meeting? What impact will it have on the health care you receive or don't receive? We'll speak to the head of the Canadian Medical Association and ask our political strategists about what they're hearing about tomorrow's meeting tonight. Also... The PRC knows precisely why we did what we did. The U.S. shoots down a Chinese balloon and triggers a diplomatic row. Was it, as Beijing says, just a weather aircraft blown off course, or as Washington says, an attempt to monitor U.S. defense? We'll speak to a former Canadian ambassador to China, Guy Saint-Jacques. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. The first ministers won't meet until tomorrow afternoon in Ottawa, but already we are getting an idea of what the Prime Minister will be offering the provinces when it comes to health care funding. And we heard today Justin Trudeau once again pledging to protect the principles of the Canada Health Act. We will ensure uh, that we are standing up unequivocally for the Canada Health Act, ensuring uh, that all Canadians can have access uh, to timely and necessary procedures. We know that's what Canadians expect, whether it's uh, more doctor, more family doctors, uh, whether it's uh, ending the backlogs on mental health services, whether it's, over, uh, it's stopping the overwhelming of our ERs. We will be there to invest with the provinces and ensure results for Canadians. And when it comes to details, multiple outlets are reporting the Prime Minister will be offering billions of dollars in new funding, but also saying it may be weeks before deals are actually signed. For some reaction, we're now joined by Dr. Alika LaFontaine. He is the president of the Canadian Medical Association. Dr. LaFontaine, nice to meet you finally face-to-face. -face. Yeah, thanks for having me. So we're, we're starting to get an idea of what's going to be on the table tomorrow. As I said, mm -hmm. billions of dollars from the Prime Minister being offered to the provinces. Uh, and along with them, a number of side agreements and this cautioning that perhaps by end of day tomorrow there will be no deal signed. So, so let's break that up, beginning with this idea that deals may not be signed by end of day tomorrow. What's your reaction mm -hmm. to that? So I, I think it's really important for us to remember we are still in the midst of the worst healthcare collapse in the history of health systems in Canada. So patients are having a difficult time accessing care. Sometimes when they are sitting in waiting rooms or emergency rooms, they end up not receiving the care they need and, and sometimes having very severe outcomes as a result. And so speed of signing these deals is extremely important. We do know that we're getting more funding or expect to get more funding to provinces and territories. Now the real question is, where is that funding going to go? Mm -hmm. And where do you hope that funding goes? Where are you worried that it might actually get ignored? You know, I, I think the real fear for bilateral deals is we migrate from doing the necessary to doing the achievable. There's certain things that have to change in Canadian healthcare for us to improve access to Canadians. You know, pan-Canadian licensure is one of the things that will help to alleviate patients' difficulty accessing care because it'll make it easier for people to move from one place to place. You know, and by that you mean from province to province to province to province. Province to province, jurisdiction to jurisdiction. You know, I, I live along the border of BC. I choose not to practice in BC because the process of registering for a license is both timely and, and very costly. And so, you know, moving towards a national type of way of managing our workforce is really, really important. 
you know, making sure that we move towards team-based care where people can distribute the workload of care and having patients walk in through multiple doors to get the care that they need. You know, that's a really important thing. You know, all of these things can migrate towards sounding like innovation, but still being more of the same. And, and that's actually what I'm very afraid of when it comes to these battle, bilateral deals. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I guess part of it, too, is that when it becomes the, uh, you know, there's not a one size fits all. The worry is that there will be one jurisdiction that perhaps gets less from another then. Well, you know, I, I think it's less of a worry of getting less and more moving towards ways for us to understand where actual needs are. You know, back in November when they were talking about, you know, national data sharing and a national workforce plan, you know, baked into that is the ability for us to actually know where patients need things and the skills that providers need to have in order to satisfy those needs. You know, when we talk about things like licensure and and healthcare teams, you know, it's all about working differently because it's going to be difficult for us to increase our numbers in, in a short period of time. And so once again, it's focusing on the watch now that we know that the amount is higher. Mm-hmm. The amount being higher. Does that at least give you some hope that the amount is higher? Although, mm-hmm. to be fair, Dr. Catherine Smart, who's your predecessor, mm-hmm. did say last summer that it's not just about money. You know, I, I think the federal government has been consistent that it doesn't have a problem with spending more money as long as that money goes to the right places. You know, uh, once again, if, if we move away from a pan-Canadian deal towards kind of one-off deals with each province and territory, there's a difficulty that gets introduced where, where we might be too specific. You know, we may be too localized when really a lot of these problems are big problems shared by the entire country. There's not a single jurisdiction that's doing a great job at access to primary care right now. There's not a single jurisdiction that, you know, has too many family docs, for example. So, you know, what Canadians want is solutions that actually fix the root causes of these problems. And, and that can get lost in these bilateral deals. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, to that, I also want to bring up the fact that there was or is rather an Ipsos, re, uh, excuse me, an Ipsos poll that came out mm-hmm. today. And it found uh, 60% of Canadians are now in favor of private health care for those who can afford it. Health care, public health care has been the sacred issue in this country. And now you have the majority mm-hmm. of Canadians saying, well, maybe it's time for private health care. What do you make of that number? You know, what what I what I read that as is 60% of Canadians recognizing that access is so severe of a problem that we have to think about other options. You know, the the major the major problem facing patients across the country, regardless of which province or territory that you're in, is how do I actually access care? You know, and then once I can access care, how do I make sure that that's the right care for me to receive? And so we can go about investing in different ways, but once again, we have to be focused on the right types of things. Private care is a tool, it's not a solution. You know, what's our real solutions to healthcare? Changing the way that we work together, making sure that workers can go to the places where they're needed, and a real focus on access for patients. And I I think investment in the public system is the best way to do that. Mm -hmm. So again, the first ministers meet tomorrow. Uh, We've heard a little bit from the Mm -hmm. prime minister, a little bit so far from uh, uh, the premier of Manitoba, who's chairing the premiers right now. Uh, What is your message to the first ministers? You know, my, my real message is that every moment that we wait to have these deals worked out is a acceleration of the deterioration of what's happening in health systems right now. You know, patients are not getting what they need. Providers are in situations where they're having a hard time being able to bring care to patients that need them. And as a result, it's very, very demoralizing, more so than ever that I can remember. Um, you know, and the, the other message is that we need to focus on doing what's necessary, which isn't necessarily what's easy. You know, I want to see coming out of these meetings that we're focused on doing hard things. You know, it's in the hard things that we're actually going to fix the healthcare system. Well, I know you'll be watching closely tomorrow. We'll be watching, and perhaps later in the week, you and I will speak again. But for now, uh, Dr. Alika LaFontaine, thank you.
Thanks for having me. Well, let's take a look now at the other stories making headlines today. The Prime Minister says Canada is ready to help after a massive earthquake in Turkey and Syria. A global relief effort is underway as crews continue to search destroyed buildings. More than 2,300 people are confirmed dead. Thousands more are injured. The 7.8 magnitude earthquake devastating a region where the Syrian civil war has already displaced millions of people. To see more people become eligible for the program and give them more time to apply. We believe it's the right thing to do for people who seek uh, entry into Canada on an open work permit. But to my earlier point, we also believe it serves Canada's self interest. The immigration minister is expanding a special work permit for Hong Kong residents. Originally set to expire tomorrow, the deadline to apply for a temporary three year work permit has now been pushed back to February 7 of 2025. Eligibility has also been expanded. Any Hong Kong resident with a post-secondary degree or diploma attained in the last 10 years can now apply. Before, it was limited to those who graduated in the last five years. The Hong Kong work program began after China's crackdown against dissent and free speech in 2020. And a story we're following near Ottawa. More debate over politicians delivering a mandatory oath of allegiance to King Charles. The town council in Prescott, Ontario will consider asking the province to let municipal politicians choose whether or not they swear allegiance to Canada's head of state. Quebec's National Assembly removed the requirement for provincial members last December, three months after the death of Queen Elizabeth II. We are following the story. The PRC knows precisely what this was. Uh, the PRC knows precisely why this was in our airspace. The PRC knows precisely what this was doing uh, over the United States. And ultimately, uh, the PRC knows precisely why we did what we did. The diplomatic row over that Chinese balloon continues on this Monday. Shot down this weekend off the coast of South Carolina, Beijing is calling the American use of force an overreaction. China says the balloon, which was blown off course, is used for meteorological purposes. But the U.S. Defense Secretary isn't buying it. Lloyd Austin saying the balloon was an attempt by Beijing to monitor strategic sites in the United States. Meanwhile, a second balloon is now being tracked over Latin America. And to discuss all of this, we're now joined by Guy Saint-Jacques. He served as Canada's ambassador to Beijing from 2012 to 2016. Ambassador Saint-Jacques, thank you for joining us again. Uh, thank you for the invitation, Mr. Serapio. So it's quite the discrepancy here. On the one hand, we're hearing China describing this balloon as a civilian research aircraft. Uh, the U.S. Defense Secretary convinced it's a tool for spying. Is there really any way of knowing which side to, is to be believed here? <clears throat> well, I think we should know uh, pretty soon once the uh, U.S. military <clears throat> recover the remnants of this uh, balloon and the equipment that uh, it was carrying. Uh, we will have a better idea, but I must say at this stage, I, I tend to lean uh, towards the Chinese explanation uh, because uh, you, the, the, these kinds of balloons are used by meteorological ser uh, services. And uh, I learned earlier today that, in fact, the, the head of the Chinese uh, Meteorological Administration has lost his job. Uh, so it seems like you know, someone had to be punished on the Chinese side because, uh, of course, this is a, a big embarrassment for the Chinese. 
Well, you say that, and I take it, I guess part of the American concern here has to do with the balloon's course, because at one point uh, it was spotted over Montana, and that's a state that ha that is essentially home to a number of defense assets, among them radar sites and nuclear missile uh, silos. How concerning is that? Well, uh, you raise a good point. In fact, if uh, indeed it turns out to be a, a balloon that was used for uh, meteorological purposes, why didn't the, the Chinese alert uh, Canada and the U.S. much in advance? Because they knew uh, the direction of prevailing winds, and so they could have given up uh, heads up by saying, look, we have lost control on this balloon. Uh, you know, it's going to uh, go over your territories. But in, in fact, they, they waited uh, for the uh, Americans to uh, lodge a protest to, uh, to react. Uh, and... Of course, uh, you know, we, we have to see what kind of equipment was on board uh, this balloon because uh, it's clear that uh, it uh, went over one of the, mo the three most uh, strategic uh, U.S. sites in terms of uh, ballistic missiles. And all this, in fact, uh, uh, as I said earlier, is a big embarrassment for China because it goes against one of their sacrosanct uh, principles in foreign policy, that of territorial integrity. And in this case, they know very well that they violated the U.S. airspace, and uh, it's something that uh, uh, should have been avoided, uh, especially at this time, because the relationship between uh, China and the U.S. is uh, is not very good. Well, well, to that point, we know, of course, the U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, he, he canceled a visit to Beijing because of the balloon. Uh, what do you make of that move? Was it an overreaction? No, I think it was the uh, appropriate reaction. Until we know what exactly this balloon was, uh, you know, this has to be uh, uh, clarified. And uh, Mr. Blinken, as he indicated uh, himself, uh, he didn't want this uh, uh, this uh, whole episode to dominate the discussion uh, over there. But this is a, a big uh, setback. As you know, President Biden met with President Xi at the G20 summit uh, in uh, Bali last November. Uh, Xi Jinping is faced with a very difficult uh, economic situation uh, after the abrupt cancellation of the uh, zero-COVID policy. Uh, the visit of Secretary Blinken was seen as uh, part of trying to rebuild some uh, dialogue. And in a way, you could look at this uh, balloon episode as almost a, a sabotage to, to try to undermine uh, President Xi Jinping. Uh, and so uh, uh, I hope that the uh, the visit of Mr. Blinken will be rescheduled. But of course, first, we have to know uh, what kind of equipment. Uh, and if it were to turn out that there was uh, what maybe I could call a dual use uh, uh, purposes uh, equipment on this uh, balloon, then it would uh, it would create uh, more challenges uh, for the uh, relationship between the U.S. and China. When you talk about the U.S. and China, I'm also wondering about Canada because, of course, this country was monitoring the situation, supported uh, Washington's decision to take down uh, the balloon. So does that decision to be so standing so closely to the United States with this decision, will that have an impact on China-Canada relations, do you think? Well, to be, to be frank, the relationship is... Uh, uh, at the low ebb, <clears throat> and uh, I don't see uh, uh, any signs that uh, it could uh, recover soon. Uh, we have seen how uh, President Xi Jinping treated the, the Prime Minister in Bali. Uh, clearly, the, there's no good chemistry between the two leaders. 
Uh, and in fact, you know, uh, the Canadian airspace was violated as much as the uh, U.S. airspace. And, and so it's normal for, the, uh, for Canada and uh, the U.S. to have coordinated the, the response through uh, NORAD. But all this to say that I think that uh, if you look at the Indo-Pacific strategy that was unveiled uh, in late November by Minister Jolie, uh, even with a more limited uh, engagement, uh, uh, even that I think uh, will be uh, difficult to implement uh, at this stage. Guy Saint-Jacques, thank you for this. I appreciate the time as always. Thank you very much. Obviously, yes, there will be increases uh, to the funding that we're sending to the provinces for health care, but there's also going to need to be flexibility for every province that has different needs and a different system, uh, well, different details or pressures within their systems. That's a way of ensuring that we're respecting provincial jurisdiction on health care while making sure the federal government is there. Well, that was the Prime Minister heading into question period today, essentially giving us a hint as to what to expect when the First Ministers meet tomorrow. And with their thoughts on the meeting, we're now joined by our strategist. Susan Smith is principal with the Blue Sky Strategy Group. Kate Harrison is the vice chair of Summa Strategies. And Kim Wright is principal with Wright Strategies. Hello to all of you. Hello, Michael. Now, Susan, you and I were talking about this Friday, and we're now hearing it from the Prime Minister, essentially telling us not to expect tomorrow uh, to end with any signed agreements. Money will be offered, but beyond that, I guess, still a big question mark. What are you hearing from government circles? Well, no surprise that it's very difficult to get uh, all the premiers around the table to all agree to the exact same thing. The one level of agreement is that healthcare is a priority and that it was important to meet with the prime minister. So that's what's happening tomorrow. And they all, they all agree that there's money that needs to be invested into the system, though they don't agree on the dollars. What I'm hearing around town is accountability. You can't just throw money at something if there's no change. You can't throw money at something if we're still a country that can't count where COVID cases are, you know, some of the problems we've had during the pandemic. Money alone isn't going to fix the number of healthcare workers and mobility in those kinds of scenarios or training. So we need some accountability, we need some coordination, and Canadians need to know that their taxpayers' dollars are going into a system that's going to deliver better results for them. So I'm optimistic in the long road. I think the Prime Minister's been smart about setting expectations that a deal isn't going to be done overnight. It's very hard to get Quebec, Alberta, Manitoba, Ontario, everybody else to all agree to the exact same thing. But I think there's a model when it comes to looking at childcare, or if you look at mental health and um, home care, the government's found a way to negotiate deals that enable progress in the provinces. But for me, for my dollars, I want to see results. Uh, Kate, I think it's fair to say that uh, many were disappointed when the health ministers failed to reach an agreement last November. So if the prime minister is already signaling that no deal will be signed tomorrow, what do you make of calling the first ministers together in Ottawa? Well, they're trying to demonstrate some action on this, Michael, without a whole lot of detail. A few things, uh, in fairness, have changed since the fall. Uh, you've had a particularly bad viral uh, cold season that has pushed people uh, to hospitals and hospitals to their breaking point, even more than they were uh, during the pandemic. 
Uh, and then you've got provinces, of course, that are starting to dip a toe into more private sector delivery uh, of publicly funded health care. So that has really kind of forced this conversation that the prime minister and premiers are having now. I think that really it's in the prime minister's interest, uh, and they seem to be doing this so far, of keeping things as macro level as possible. Uh, the tough work is going to be what the provinces uh, deem important and where they decide to put dollars uh, and how they'll innovate their own system. So uh, keeping things pretty high level uh, at this point, which uh, Prime Minister Trudeau seems to be doing, I think is is all for the better because he won't then have to wear the political consequence uh, of voters being upset uh, that they're not seeing immediate benefit uh, from that investment. Well, it's, you know, it's interesting, Kim, because this does remind me uh, of childcare when the prime minister's government has essentially dis, uh, deployed this kind of divide and conquer technique to get uh, deals done rather with each province by province by province. What does this uh, strategy signal to you? Well, I'm hoping, unlike the childcare deal that took 30 years and, you know, a generation and a half to finally come to some version of fruition, uh, that the deal on healthcare actually gets managed quickly. But this is entirely the prime minister trying to manage expectations. Viewers will remember that a couple of weeks ago, he was trying, the prime minister was trying to do uh, sidebar deals with Ontario, even going far as to saying that Doug Ford uh, rolling out private, private sector and uh, pay for better uh, health care was innovative. Now, he got roundly uh, pushed back within his own caucus and with others. But more importantly, the, uh, the Premier of Ontario and other premiers said, you're not getting a sidebar with us. We are going to do this as a group and you're going to have to negotiate against against the collective. And who knew that Doug Ford would uh, be all for collective bargaining? But here we are. Uh, this is an important thing for Canadians. And this is going to be an important thing even more for voters. What we have seen quite rightly is people being quite concerned about the state of affairs in our healthcare system. We also know that a pharmacare deal needs to continue to come for, to fruition if uh, the supply and confidence motion with the new Democrats is going to come forward. There are a lot of things and a lot of moving parts of this. And I think what we're seeing time and again, and we'll talk about uh, polling that's come up, people are tired of the finger pointing, they're tired of the theatrics, they wanna have access to healthcare system where they live and not, you know, half uh, half in and half out, and you know, half not even at all. So that's what we're looking for. And the prime minister is going to try to have to manage those expectations. Susan, is the government at all worried uh, of a backlash by not coming out with a deal tomorrow? And I appreciate the politicians are concerned about dollars, but the public arguably just want to trust that they can see a doctor when they need one. And I think the public understand that it's provincial administration when they go into their wallets and they pull out their health card. Mine, I live in Ontario, so mine's an OHIP card. And everybody understands it's the province that administers those things. And there's no such thing as an instant fix. I think what happened, but people are frustrated. I recognize that. And the provinces are actually going to have to play ball too. We have electronic record systems that don't talk to one another from province to province. That's nonsense in 2023. Those are the kinds of things that the provinces are going to have to come to the table themselves and stop being so parochial or territorial about. So the, pro the government of Canada can put up money. If the provinces want to negotiate as the block, that's great. But that means Danielle Smith and the Premier of Quebec and Scott Moe, they all have to come forward and agree on what those terms will be and how quickly they can get done. You can bet in Nova Scotia they're trying to get as many doctors as they can to deal with the ER crises that's going on. So 
Canadians, um, they know the federal government has a role in funding. They recognize, of course, that the provinces are the ones that deliver these healthcare services, and they will have no time for political grandstanding and posturing that's turf, a turf war exercise. They want doctors, they want uh, data to be shared, they want their healthcare system to improve so they can get the services that they want, but that's everybody dancing at the same time. Well, up against that, Kate, I'll bring you in here because there is, as you know, this new Ipsos poll that came out today. It says 60% of Canadians now support private health care delivery. What does that say to you, that a traditionally sacred issue like public health care is no longer sacred for a majority of Canadians? It belies how broken the system is. And I think the pandemic really put a spotlight on just how uh, deeply challenged the healthcare system is across the country. Uh, we saw hospitals, doctors, uh, healthcare professionals push to their breaking point. Um, and so people are really seeing the, the consequence of that now. So this has moved very fast to your point uh, on the public opinion radar. Uh, remember it was just 2021 during that snap election that Christian Freeland uh, and, and Justin Trudeau tried to make an issue uh, out of the private delivery of publicly funded healthcare against the O'Toole Conservatives. And it was completely verboten at that time. Here we are, um, you know, less than 18 months later, and it's a very different story. So to me, it speaks to how broken the system is, uh, and frankly, how urgent the need is for Canadians to see some demonstrable change in the system. And yes, that includes through uh, reforms like what we're seeing in Ontario. Mm -hmm. uh, Kim, what do you say to that number? Look, there is a gobsmacking amount of money that is earmarked for healthcare across the country and in every one of our provinces and territories. How it is delivered or not delivered is really what people are seeing. And this is a number that reflects that, that they can't get local doctors in their community. In Ontario, where I live, we had virtual care uh, during the pandemic that all of a sudden now, because they're not, the doctors aren't getting paid as much for it, they've taken that off. So now people have to go travel three and four towns over 30 minutes, 40 minutes, an hour or more uh, to go see a specialist. That is absurd to me. And the way that technology works where you can get anything anywhere, but somehow to get results from a doctor isn't on the table. Again, there is gobsmacking amounts of money in the system. If there are these so-called innovations that private delivery companies are running, why aren't we adding those into the public sector? Why aren't MRIs being run 24 hours a day to catch up on the backlog? Those are the things that Canadians are looking for. And to think that going to the private sector is going to be the panacea because, you know, they like to now say, well, you'll pay with your health card, not your credit card. But what you'll pay for with your health card in these quote-unquote innovations is the base model. It's like going to a car dealership. You'll get the base model for that sticker price, but if you want the good radio, you want the good tires, you want air conditioning, or in this case, cataract surgery that works for the long term, you're going to have to pay, pay a lot for that. So take that money that's in the system, recalibrate the system, and bring back public confidence in these public institutions. That's what those first ministers should be talking about. Which, of course, underlines that the discussions tomorrow are very important. We'll be watching. Of course, the four of us will probably gather in the days to come to talk about it. But for now, Susan Smith, Kate Harrison, Kim Wright, thank you for the time. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Michael. And that is our program for this Monday evening. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for joining us. We'll see you again tomorrow.